So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the third chapter, verses 15 through 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Father, as we analyze, study, notice the life of this great Old Testament prophet and saint, may we learn not only from his words, but also from his life, from the stand that he takes, recognizing that he's a model for us, and and that if, if we stand for the truth as he stands for the truth, we are by necessity going to find ourselves standing against a world that does not understand truth at all. Lord, we ask that you would clarify every word that I say this morning, that I wouldn't vary to the right or to the left, but that I will stick to the truth that you have given us in Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The words that Pontius Pilate spoke to Jesus at the beginning of his trial have become emblematic of the way that the world that we live in sees truth. You know the story. It's extremely dramatic. The Sanhedrin had already condemned Jesus and turned him over to Pilate with the hope that Pilate would crucify him as he did. But Pilate was really only concerned as to whether or not Jesus was leading a rebellion. So the question that he asked him was, are you a king? And to this, Jesus responded, you say that I am a king. And that's kind of a way of saying, well, I'm a king, but not in the way that you think I am. But he goes on and says this, listen, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And of course, in response to that, the the famous words of Pilate, the famous words of skepticism when he said, what is truth? And right there in a microcosm, we see the confrontation between the truth of the kingdom of heaven and the truth of this world or the lack of the truth of this world. Notice what Jesus said. He said, I came for this purpose to bear witness to the truth. That's an absolute, undeniable, unquestionable, unalterable truth. It is the truth of God, and it is absolutely fixed and firm. Jesus says, I came to tell you what is true. Pilate says, what is truth? Your truth? My truth? Syrian's truth? Egyptian truth? Greek truth? I mean, come on. Who, whose truth are you talking about? Because everybody has their own idea of truth. But you see, he didn't hear what Jesus said. Jesus said, no, there is truth. Truth. 
absolute, unquestionable truth. And it is the truth that God has established. And if you really want to know what is true, find out what God has said and quit making it up yourself. But you see, this is what got Jesus in trouble. And it's also what's going to get John the Baptist in trouble. And it's what's going to get us in trouble. Because we have learned already that when you stand for the truth, you by necessity stand against falsehood. And so therefore, if you stand for the truth of God, you're going to find yourself standing against the world. And that's really the focus that we're going to have this morning as we continue to look at the life of John the Baptist. Now, here's where we are in Luke's gospel. Luke is leading us. We're sort of in a transition between his nativity story and the beginning of the ministry of Christ. And so he's focusing on John the Baptist in this transitional period. Now, what what that transition is, is is sort of bringing what he has already stated in the nativity story into this part of his gospel. In other words, that these Old Testament saints, this Old Testament prophet, they have so much to offer us that we need to learn from them. Luke has been making that clear. And so there's already some things we've learned about John the Baptist before we get to this point. We have learned, and this is most important, we have learned that John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that that is crucial to understanding who John the Baptist is and what he is doing. He is calling people to repentance, and that's part of what his purpose is. We've talked about a twofold purpose that John the Baptist has. Most important, it is to introduce Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah. And he does that through his baptism. But it is also to prepare the people's heart for the Savior. And you see, there's a big problem with their hearts. is that they're entitled. They came out saying, we're the sons of Abraham. And if you are preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, well, the kingdom belongs to us, so we're here to claim it. John the Baptist says, no, that's not the way it works. You you may claim that you're the sons of Abraham, but as far as we're concerned, as far as God is concerned, you are a brood of vipers, meaning you are the spawn of Satan. And unless something happens in your life, you're on the way to hell. (laughs) Yeah, John the Baptist was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And that is exactly what he is saying to these religiously entitled people. Hey, I'm good. I don't need anything but to come and claim my kingdom because, after all, I am God's people. And John the Baptist says that's not the way it works at all. And so some people came and they began to ask him, well, well John, what, what, what does the fruit of repentance look like? If, if you say we have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance or else we're never going to see the light of heaven, then what does it look like? So he began to explain to them the ethical standards of heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to say, I know that some people get upset about or get confused about that word ethics. But ethics represents the truth of God. You see, God has established truths. They're they're not debatable. They're absolute truths, something that our culture absolutely denies. But God has established these truths. And part of that truth is a set of behavioral values that we are to live by. That's what ethics is. All ethics are, are a standard of virtues and values and things that we shouldn't do that we live by. 
Morality is how well we do that. It's a measuring stick of how well we keep to the ethical standards. John the Baptist is telling the people, there's an ethical standard and it's not the ethical standard of this world. Truth is not what you see it. It is not what you make it out to be. It's not what you declare it to be. Truth is from God and from God alone. So therefore, the ethical standards are from God alone. Live according to the ethical standards of the kingdom. Live according to the truths of the kingdom and it will lead you to salvation. And you know where it starts? It starts with repentance because only those who truly repent are ever going to understand how desperately they need a Savior. And that's what he's doing. He's preparing the people's hearts for the Savior to come. Now, once we establish that, and this is all stuff that we've already talked about, once we establish that, then we began to look at John the Baptist himself. Not just his words, but his life. And we notice, first of all, we're going to look at four attributes of John the Baptist. And and again, let me apologize. Uh, this was originally one sermon. Um, it then got morphed into two sermons, and now it's expanded into three. So we're just going to take part of it this morning because it just keeps growing um, in, in, in the way that we're looking at this. But we have already looked at the first of four attributes. We're going to look at his humility. We're going to look at his truthfulness. We're going to look at his boldness. And then we're going to look at his suffering. We'll get boldness and suffering next week. But this week we're going to focus on truthfulness. Last week we talked about his humility. And we talked about the very fact that he made that statement in the 16th verse. I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me who's greater than me will baptize you with Holy Spirit fire. That in and of itself was a profound statement of humility. He is immediately stating that my baptism, my ministry, my life, and everything that I'm about is inferior. It is second to the one who comes after me. So I bend the knee. I must decrease. He must increase. I'm all about Jesus. And we looked at even his personal pronouns that were all pointing, not to himself, but pointing to Jesus. But then we also noticed that the very fact that he was calling the people to repentance was a statement of humility. Because there's a lot of humility in repentance, folks. We know that. I mean, first of all, you have to admit you're a sinner. And then you have to admit that your sins will condemn you. And then you have to admit that you can't fix your sins. And that means you need a Savior. And so you repent and turn to Jesus, your Savior. That's humbling yourself. That's humility. So John is teaching a baptism, not just of repentance, but of humility. But then he pointed out at at the end of that statement that the one who comes after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we'll look at that in a moment because we're going to return to that statement and look at it just a little bit differently. But we know that sandwiched in between those two statements was another great statement of the humility of John the Baptist. I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals. And we talked about what that meant. It was the lowest job in the household to take the sandals off the feet of people who came in and wash their feet. The lowest servant in the household did that. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to do that to the one who comes behind me. Really uh, placing himself in a state of humility before Christ. That was the important part of it. So that's the first, we, that was the, the first attribute that we saw This morning, we're going to turn our attention to his truthfulness because, you see, he was a prophet and he told the truth. He stood on the word of God 
and all the people who were coming out to him were self-entitled, self-aggrandizing people who thought that they were the chosen of God, and he calls them the spawn of Satan, among other things. And he, and, he, and he lays it right in front of him. So that's the reason I want to go back and I want to look at that 16th verse just a little bit more. Because when John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, he's talking about a baptism that is external and symbolic. It, it is a baptism of preparing the hearts of people so that they could truly be saved by the one who is coming. Because the arrogant people are, are, are not going to submit themselves to Christ and put their trust in him for salvation. And so there was that humbling, that humility that needed to happen, first of all. But then he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, last week, we looked at that from sort of a very positive point of view and from a prophetic point of view. Because after all, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And and when he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about in that charismatic Pentecostal way of the second baptism. We'll sort of reference that a little bit later on. He's talking about when you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit moves into your heart, takes the old heart out of stone and puts a new heart that's capable of loving and desirous of pleasing God. That's what he's talking about. What Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It is that process of being born again, regeneration. That is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of baptism that Jesus is going to bring, the kind of baptism that actually changes people. That actually changes your eternity when Jesus baptizes you that way. And we talked about the fire part of it in in a sense. You know, fire can be destructive, but it also can be a purifying agent. And we talked about how precious metals were heated over fire so that the dross, the impurities would rise to the top and you'd scrape them off. And what was left was pure. That was one of scripture's analogies that are used of the beneficial part that fire can play. And of course, John the Baptist also, as a prophet, was looking forward to Pentecost and saying, you know something, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon the church in power. And of course, tongues of fire appeared over the heads of the church. Now, that was a decidedly positive way to look at this statement. We're going to look at it from a different position. We're going to look at it not from the position of what is sandwiched in between those two statements, but what follows the final one. And that's going to be verse 17, where... John begins to speak of the reality, the truth of eschatological judgment. And so when he says that there's going to be an eschatological judgment, that there is going to be literally, and I don't use these words lightly, hell to pay for our transgressions against the holy gods. That kind of puts a different light on when he says that he will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit reverse those. Now, we, we also, let me just mention one other thing before I go ahead. We also mentioned last week that John the Baptist, uh, had the opportunity when the people came out with that great expectation. Remember, they were looking for the Messiah and everybody's talking and saying, well, maybe John the Baptist is the Messiah. Well, his humility was tested. It wasn't in a vacuum. I mean, he had plenty of, of ability or reason to exalt himself, but he never did. There's another temptation that I'm sure he would have suffered. And I can tell you as a preacher, as one who stands up in front of you every single week, 
that this is a very real temptation to anyone who preaches the word of God. And that is the desire to please. I mean, think about it. These people are coming all the way from Jerusalem. That's a trek. That's a hard road from all over Judea. And they're coming from all over there and they're constantly saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And, you know, when people do that, there's this natural inclination to, well, don't I have some kind of obligation for them? I mean, shouldn't I make them feel good about themselves? You know, shouldn't I leave them with some kind of a platitude, some kind of uplifting statement so that they'll come back and Listen to me again. And unfortunately, I think that quite often in churches, especially pastors, we start thinking about the congregation as customers. And, and, and you know the old adage really doesn't work in business any more than it works in the church. But the old adage that says the customer is always right. Well, that's not true. It's devastating for a church. Because actually the word of God is right and the word of God is true. And, and if I'm going to be truthful, then I've got to preach to you the word of God. If John the Baptist is going to be truthful to these people who are coming out thinking they're saved, he's going to tell them that they are in danger of hellfire. But people don't like to hear that so they don't come back. But is he actually being truthful? To send somebody on their way feeling good about themselves when they're lost. To send someone on their way with platitudes and giving them some kind of positive instruction. Which is what I would love to do because I know that's what people need. But is that what would be truthful to the word of God? I'll never forget an image that Dr. Kennedy um, in one of his sermons developed. And boy, it has stuck with me. He said the church is like a bunch of people sitting under a vast big tree. And they're sitting in a circle and they're all involved with each other and they're making daisy chains. And right next to them, there's a line of people that stretch as far as the eye can see. And next to them is a cliff that falls off into a lake of molten fire. And one by one, they just walk right over that cliff. And it's like the church doesn't even pay any attention to them. They they don't even look up. They're just way too busy making their little daisy chains. They're way too busy in themselves and focusing on their own needs. That they're not paying any attention. That they're not telling the truth. That there is damnation for those who don't know Jesus Christ. And that there's real eschatological judgment. And that it's not made up. Because if you believe that God says anything that is true, then you have to believe that there is eschatological judgment. And that's what John the Baptist is telling the people, even though it wasn't popular. No more so than it is popular today. You see, brothers and sisters, that's the other way of looking at when John the Baptist says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The gospel is a double-edged sword. The gospel brings salvation. The gospel is the only way to salvation. It's glorious and it's beautiful. But it also condemns those who reject it. If you'd only listen. If you'd only pay attention to what Jesus himself said, you would know that. When he was talking to the Pharisees after he healed the man born blind... He said this, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, the gospel, even though it saves, also condemns. 
Once again, he said in his upper room discourse, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The gospel is a double-edged sword, brothers and sisters. It is glorious and it fills us with the Holy Spirit if we accept Jesus as Savior. But reject Jesus? Set your own path to salvation. The gospel condemns you. Because Jesus came and said, I bear witness to the truth. The truth of God. I came to bear witness to you and tell you what it's all about. And Jesus spoke more of hell than anyone else. Jesus is the one who said, Do not fear those who will kill the body, but fear the one who can send both body and soul to hell. I realize, brothers and sisters, trust me, I realize. I realize that that is very unpopular, that the culture pretty much ignores that, denies the existence of hell, and and that is seeped into modern Christendom to the point that we just don't talk about hell anymore. It's just not really something that we discuss. And yet, Jesus discussed it more than anyone else. Now, now here's, here's what... I just want to share with you this morning. Okay, so you say, I, I don't get the fire business and, and the worm that never dies. All right, I, I think that that's some kind of metaphor. That's the Valley of Gehenna or whatever it is. Okay, I'm not going to argue that fact with you. I, I will on another occasion, but not today, not now. But what I will tell you is don't minimalize it. Don't, don't wish it away. You can't. Don't act like it doesn't exist. You can't minimalize it. Don't talk about annihilation. Don't think that when you leave this world that your punishment for not accepting Christ would simply be to die and cease to exist. That's not altogether terrible to think about. I don't know about you, but sometimes this life becomes pretty hard. And it becomes pretty tumultuous. And the idea of just simply not existing is not all that horrible. Hell is. So let, let, let me just make sure that you please listen to these words. And I know this is unpleasant. I know that you're, you know, you're going to get tired of this real soon. But Jesus told us that he came to bear witness to the truth. And part of that truth is the fact that there is a physical place called hell. And that no matter what you imagine it to be, it is more horrific than your finite mind can comprehend. And that's the truth that Jesus shared when he came. And the reason I say that about that 16th verse is what he says in the 17th verse. So, did I tell you that John the Baptist was a hellfire and brimstone preacher? Look in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Very familiar scene to the people in John the Baptist's day. Not one so familiar to us. Although I think for most of you it's a very familiar uh, analogy because you've heard it explained so many times. But let me just flesh it out very, very briefly. When you talk about a threshing floor, um, you know the way that barley and wheat is. That's really the kind of grain they're talking about. It grows on a stalk, and then there's this little flowering type of head where the kernels are, and they're encased in these little sheaths called chaff. 
Now, the trick is, is in order to get the kernel out, somehow with these billions of kernels that you're going to take out of your your, your, your acreage, well, you, somehow you're going to have to get them separated. It is an analogy of separation. Let me repeat that. This is an analogy of separation. When Jesus sat on the side of the Mount of Olives, he told his disciples a similar story. He said, the next time that I come, I'm not going to come like I came the first time. I'm going to come with my angels in power and glory. And when I do come, there will be a judgment. I will separate the, those who know me and love me from those who don't. And it will be like a shepherd separating the sheep and the goats. I'm going to put all the sheep on my right hand. I'm going to put all the goats on my left hand. And to those on my right hand, I'm going to say, let's go. Because I've prepared a place for you in heaven. I have prepared an eternity for you in glory. And that is where you're going. This is where each person who has put their trust in me is going. To those on those left, this is what he said. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. It's an analogy of separation. When they would bring the wheat in, they would put it on the threshing floor. Now, the optimal threshing floor would be a flat table rock, if you will, because they needed a flat area. And it needs to not have a lot of ridges in it. And they would usually build up some kind of a perimeter around it to hold the grain in. If they didn't have a flat rock, they would pound the earth until it was almost rock-like. And then they would put the sheaves of grain on that threshing floor and they would run over it with a sledge of sorts. Something that would crush and separate the, the, the kernels from the sheaths that surrounded them and from the stalks. When they were finished with that, they would remove the stalks and put them in a big pile. And what they would be left with on the threshing floor was an impossible conglomeration of the kernels of wheat and the, and the chaff all intermixed with each other. So the way that they would get them separated was through winnowing. And they would take this fork, or actually it was more like a shovel, and usually they would try to position it in a place where there's a constant breeze, a good breeze, because the way they would do it is they would throw the whole thing up in the air, and since the chaff and the dust was so light, it would blow out of the area, and the grain would simply fall down. And they would do it over and over again, repetitively and laboriously, until they came up with a pile of pretty good grain without any chaff in it. And they would take the grain and put it in baskets and store it in the barn until they ground it into flour. The chaff, I am told, is no good for anything. It is undigestible by both humans and animals. So they did with what they didn't need and what was worthless to them. They burned it. They would burn the chaff up. That's the image that Jesus used. I mean, that John the Baptist uses here about Jesus. Notice that he says that it's all he, Jesus, is the one with the winnowing fork in his hand. Now, the imagery of this, what it actually refers to, brothers and sisters, that conglomeration of, of the, the wheat and, and, the, and, and the chaff that is on the floor of that threshing floor, all intermingled and all mixed up, that's a picture of the world we live in. That's the, the, the picture of the, of, of all the sheep that would go into the same sheepfold and, and, and only the ones that belong to the master would hear his voice. That is the same picture of the, 
of, of the weeds that were planted in the field of wheat that would left, be left until the time of harvest. It is an intermingling and impossible to change until there's a winnowing, until there's a judgment. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is saying. There will be a judgment. And when that judgment comes, there will be a separation. And those who love the Lord, those who are called according to his purpose, those who are his, will be taken into eternal glory with him. And those who are not will be thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I just want you to notice what the next verse says. We're, we're going to actually start with verse 18 next week. But I just want you to notice this and see if this strikes you as strange the way it does me. Because Luke comments and says, So with many other exhortation, he preached good news to the people. Good news? What's so good about hellfire and damnation? What's so good about the threat of eschatological judgment? Well, basically everything, brothers and sisters. Because the worse the bad news is, the better the good news is. And in fact, if there's nothing else but good news, if there's nothing else but the positive, then why do you need a Savior in the first place? Why did God have to send his son to die to atone for your sins if it's nothing but good news? Many of you know that in a previous life, it seems, Sundays for me were for sailing. And every Sunday morning, you'd wake up, and first thing you would do would be to check the weather. Because you knew, I'm, I've got 25-foot sailcraft. It was uh, called, it was of the, the midget ocean racing class. It was real slick boat. It was very fast when it, was, when it would get under sail. But it was a small boat. So therefore, if the seas were up, you really felt it. But... On a few occasions, not very often, but on a few occasions, you'd wake up on Sunday morning and it was an absolutely gorgeous day, no rain in the forecast, and the winds were a good clip out of the west. And they just laid that, that ocean down like a, like a sea of glass. And boy, I tell you what, you'd get up there and get on a reach and cut through that water just like butter. It was glorious. But you, you see, if that's the way it was every single day, if that was all I knew, I mean, literally, I can remember maybe four or five of those days in all the years that I used to sail. But if that was the norm, then what's so good about that? You know, you know why that was so great as far as I was concerned? Because I had been out in 15 and 20 foot seas. I had thought I was going down. I had been blown to Hollywood many times trying to beat my way into the port of Everglades when a thunderstorm would come there. I knew what it was like to be in inclement weather and high seas. And so when some beautiful day came along, it was just like, this is glorious. You see, the bad news makes the good news all the better. And and, and that's why there's a real problem if all we do is preach half the good news. You see, if all we preach is grace and mercy and compassion and love, and we don't ever tell anyone that there's a cliff they're walking towards, and there's nothing but damnation and misery on the other side of it, we don't tell people that. We're not telling them the good news. Because the good news is that Jesus saves you from that. Saves you from the wrath of God. Saves you from eschatological and eternal 
judgment. But unfortunately, brothers and sisters, modern Christendom has decided that hell is not a subject we should talk about anymore. And so they have removed it from the agenda so the good news is only partial good news. I suppose I should do what I did last week. Um, I should explain to you what I mean by modern Christendom. Christendom, of course, was the Holy Roman Empire. It was created in the ninth century by a man called Charlemagne, normally Charles the Great, Charles I. And he was the Holy Roman Emperor. And it was a melding of the church with the state. They literally became indiscernible. You couldn't discern between the two of them. All right. They became the same sort of entity. So the politics and the society and the military and, and, and governance, everything got melded together with the Roman Catholic Church. And so all of southern Europe and Italy was all part of that of that Holy Roman Empire. Still around centuries later when another John the Baptist-like man, Martin Luther, stood alone against the world and said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. He was standing in front of Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. So the the idea of Christendom is the idea of what happens when the church loses its compass and begins to meld itself with the ethical systems of the culture around it. It's a mindset. It's a belief. It, 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 it actually in some it is heretical in others it's just an undercurrent. But as I said last week, I, I think it has more to do with the problems we face in the church than any of us recognize. We are in the middle of Christendom and so much of it has seeped in. To the church. Now I want you to know this morning, brothers and sisters, that it is not my goal to bash other religions, other denominations, other people, other churches, although I know it's going to seem like that. It is not my goal to offend you, I know, although I know I will. And it's not my goal for you to be tired of hearing this, I know, although I know that you probably already are. My goal is to stand for the truth. And unfortunately, or fortunately, actually, if you stand for the truth, you stand against the error. If you stand for the truth, you're going to stand against the world. And you're going to make people upset at you like John the Baptist. We'll talk next week about the results of standing up for the truth. You can lose your head over that. But my deepest concern is you. I'm I'm the pastor of this flock, and I am called to truthfulness. I am called to tell you what Scripture says, not to change it, not to sugarcoat it, not to water it down. I am called to tell you what the truth is. And in the world in which we live, in Christendom, in modern Christendom right now, if you stand for the truth, you're going to stand against the world. Because the apostasy and heresy and the aberrations of the truth have taken over to where it's hardly, it's hard to find the truth anymore. And so I, I, I'm concerned that you know it. Is, is what I'm going to say this morning going to change anything with anyone who adheres to any of the doctrines that I'm going to talk against? No, of course not. But it, 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 it might save you from taking the wrong turn. Especially when 
that wrong turn is so difficult to see. I'm accused regularly of being a Roman Catholic basher. And the reason that I'm accused of being a Roman Catholic basher is because I speak against Roman Catholic doctrine quite often. And I I just want you to know, I I don't do it to bash Roman Catholics or any individual church or, or any member of that church. I do it because Roman Catholic doctrine has stood against the truth. So if I'm going to stand for the truth of Scripture, I by necessity must stand against Roman Catholic doctrine. If you tell me that forgiveness can come through the sacraments that a priest administers, it's called sacerdotalism, it's a whole different method of salvation. If you tell me that when a priest performs baptism or the Lord's Supper or confirmation or penitence or last rites, uh, and, and, and when those things occur, salvation and redemption is through the hands of that priest. And I've got to stand against you because there is no other name under heaven or earth by which we are saved except the name of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation anyplace else. And if you stand for that, I have to stand against you. If you stand for what happens supposedly in the mass where a priest blesses the bread and the wine and all of a sudden, mystically, they become the actual blood and the actual flesh of Jesus Christ and he offers up that blood and flesh and sacrifices Jesus all over again, then I stand against you because Scripture clearly states that his sacrifice was once and for all and that there's no priest in between you and him. The veil is ripped, folks. And there's no need for a priest to stand between you and Jesus So if you stand for that, I stand against you. Not because I have anything against you personally, but because I stand for the truth and I have to stand against the error. If, if, If you tell me that Mary is divine, if you tell me that she is co-redemptrix with Jesus Christ, if you tell me that praying to Mary will mediate between you and God or between you and Jesus, and that she, like Jesus, was immaculately conceived, if you tell me that, then I must stand against you. Because there is one Savior. There is one Messiah. There is one who came from the Father, and that is the Son. And He is the divine Son of God. So if you stand for that, I must stand against you. If you tell me that the popes are infallible, if you tell me that the councils of the church are infallible, if you tell me that the traditions of the church are infallible, if you tell me that the pope has the keys to the treasury of merit and can issue an indulgence that if you pay for, you will have sins or time in purgatory taken away from you, if you tell me that I've got to stand against you. Because that's false. There's nothing in Scripture at all that defines that. Now, you you get the point. I can go on and on, can't I? But if you stand for the truth, you by necessity stand against Roman Catholic doctrine. Going to the far end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, I am accused quite often of being a charismatic or Pentecostal basher. 
And, 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 and I'm not. I, I, I don't have anything against brothers and sisters who love the Lord, who are part of a Pentecostal church or who come from a Pentecostal church. I'm not, I'm not standing against them. I'm standing against the excesses of spiritual mysticism that quite often occur in Pentecostals and charismatic churches. If you say that God speaks to you directly, if you say that you are an apostle and that God has appointed you as an apostle and you have just as much power and authority as the original 12 apostles or that you're a prophet and God speaks through you with a fresh and a new word that is not the still small voice talking to you that is illuminating the word of God bearing witness of Christ as Jesus said the Holy Spirit would but this is a new word that sometimes is in direct conflict with the scripture then I've got to stand against you. Because this is the sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary, inerrant, infallible word of God. And God doesn't need you to bring another word. So therefore, if you stand for that, I, by necessity, stand against you. If you say that while the word is being preached from the pulpit and the word is faithfully being exposited... And the Holy Spirit comes to you and fills you with his spirit and you burst out in tongues and run around the room and bark like a dog and writhe on the floor or any other of the manifestations of some kind of spirit activity. I will tell you that that is not the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit never competes with himself and the Holy Spirit calls the church to order and not chaos. And if you create chaos within the Service, that is not something that comes from the Holy Spirit. So I've got to stand against you. I cannot condone that. I, I, I can't look at it as, well, that's just you and that's just the way that you express yourself. No. When the word of God is being exposited, that is God speaking through his word and an appointed preacher and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And that's the way God speaks to us today, not by any other means. Once again, I'm not talking about the still small voice that talks to you, that reveals scripture to you, or bears testimony about Jesus as he said would happen. But let me tell you something. If you stand against the Trinity, if you tell me that there's an inequality now between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as tens of millions of oneness Pentecostals do, If you tell me that the Father is yesterday's news, he's Old Testament, and Jesus is the only focus, or some have even dispensed with Jesus now, and it's just the Holy Spirit. Let's close this book because we're going to hear something fresh from the Holy Spirit. If you tell me that, then I've got to stand against you. Because the Trinity is the foundation of Christianity. You cannot, it's impossible that the Father would be less than the Son or the Son less than the Spirit. Because if you say that, they're no longer God. And so therefore, if you stand against the Trinity, I stand against you because I stand for the scriptural understanding of who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And once again, I could go on and on, but... I'll take a different path now. I'm accused of standing against most of modern Christendom because I stand for the biblical doctrines of election 
and predestination. Because I believe that God is all-powerful, because I believe he is all-knowing, because I believe he is absolutely sovereign and nothing in this universe happens without his ordaining it. Because of that, I'm accused of being a monster and making God a monster because not everyone is saved. Well, if you tell me that you choose God, even though there is such evidence from one end of the scripture to the other that you don't, read John 6, read Ephesians 1, read Romans 9. I mean, God is sovereign and he is control and he chooses. And this is the very foundation of what it means to be reformed. If you stand against that, then I stand against you. Not because I dislike you, not because I want to have an argument with you or a fight, but because I stand for the truth. And if you stand for the truth, brothers and sisters, and it comes out of your mouth and you don't ignore or hide from those issues, then you're going to find the world stands against you too. So therefore, brothers and sisters, it's hard to stand for the truth. Especially when the truth is so often wrapped around a falsehood. See, Paul tells us that Satan was an angel, uh, disguises himself as an angel of light. So, so often the falsehood is wrapped in something that we know to be true. Let me give you an example. We know that faith is important, don't we? We're saved by faith. Every single one of us, we're saved by faith. And we're not saved by our works, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you're saved. So that's hugely important to being a Christian. Prayer is important to a Christian, isn't it? We are told to pray incessantly, constantly praying to God, putting our our requests before Him. And we know that this Word is important, don't we? We know that the Word of God is infallible and is inerrant and is the way God reveals Himself to us. So, so far, man, I am solid, right? But if I take those three things and I twist them, If I take the word of God, prayer and faith, and I turn it around and make it what is known as the word of faith movement, which has swept modern Christendom by storm, then all of a sudden I've wrapped a falsehood in the truth. Because that falsehood says that whether I get it from scripture or whether I see it on a billboard, when God gives me a word, I claim it. I declare it. I profess it. I state it and I believe in it. And God is obligated to fulfill my request. No, he's not. (laughs) Just like those Jews that came out that thought they were the sons of Abraham when they're coming out to be baptized by John the Baptist and John the Baptist says you're entitled to nothing. You can claim nothing before God except a promise that he has made you in Scripture. And then, yeah, you can claim that, but it's not you claiming it. It is you stating something that God has said what happened and he guarantees it because he's God. You see, the, 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 that movement that puts all the emphasis on me. Now, yes, do I believe in, in free will? I do. Do you believe in free will? I, 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 we all, every single Christian needs to believe that we have a free will. But don't tell me that your free will can stand over and against God's will. Don't tell me that he's not sovereign over your will. Don't tell me that he is not omniscient, all-knowing, that he has to look down the corridors of time to figure out what you're going to do. That is so arrogant. 
Yeah, we all have wills. God has given us wills to follow him, but it's not over and against his will. What he wants us to do is to absolutely subject ourselves to his will. I'm just going to leave you with one last one. One that is a particular half-truth. And, and one that is, um, again, hugely prevalent. And I am not called a, um, a basher, but I am called a buddy-duddy in the way that we worship. And I'm going to just bring a whole bunch of different kinds of worship together, and I'm just going to call it me-worship. You see, modern Christendom is all about me, and they call it worship. It's all about felt needs. It's all about what I get out of it, what I go home with. It's all about me coming and being fed or fulfilled or me hearing the gospel and learning about Christ as an evangelistic outrage. No, actually, when we talk about worship, they use the word worship. Worship means God's saints gathering together to honor and glorify him. That's what worship is. And the degree to which we have degenerated worship to where we have made it a circus show. We have made it entertainment. I mean, you, you heard some great music this morning. And, and, and are we not blessed? I say it all the time. Are we not blessed to have music? To have the, I, the ability to express our love for God in a way a, that language, the articulated and spoken word, just can't do it. We've been given this great gift of music, but as Americans always seem to do, we say if a little is good, a lot is better. So let's change the word worship to mean music. Let's diminish the reading of the word. Let's cut down the sermon to just a devotion of some sort. Let's not pray and let's don't do the sacraments. Let's just focus on music and we'll call that worship. No, it's not worship, folks. It isn't. Worship is when God's people come together to exposit the word of God, to read the word of God. To pray to God, to give our tithes and offerings to God, to take the sacraments of God, to glorify God, to honor God. It is all about him and it is not about us. And so if you stand in any of its forms for me worship, I have to stand against you. You see, brothers and sisters, here's what we're getting. We're getting a collision of two ethical systems. Actually, a collision of an ethical system, which is God's ethical system, that says that it is absolute and unchangeable in a world that is based on the whimsy of the culture. And you see, all of a sudden, it has become the necessity and the requirement of the church to, in some way, make themselves relevant to the culture around them. And the way we do this is to bring in that ethical system into the ethical system of God and make a molding or meld it together so that it's not so abrasive to those who are on the outside. But brothers and sisters, that's not what Scripture teaches us. And I, I, I know if you're offended this morning or even if you're tired, I want you to ask yourself something. Are you offended because I have misrepresented the word of God to you? Or are you offended because I have breached the ethical standards of our culture? You see, tolerance, as far as truth is concerned, is not a biblical concept. 
That is the concept of our culture. And if you think that I'm not being tolerant and that tolerance is a virtue as far as worship is or as far as truth is concerned, then that's the degree to which the culture has already seeped its way into your thinking. And I know that some people don't like the idea of ethics and you talk about it and it just doesn't mean anything to it. So let me, let, let me be a little bit more straightforward. There's one writer in scripture that you can always depend on not mincing his words. It's James. This is what James has to say about it. You adulterous people. Talking to the church. Talking to us folks. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Is that straightforward enough for you? Is that clear? Because scripture is absolutely clear about tolerating the truths of the ethical standards of our culture. John puts it this way in his first epistle. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, Christendom doesn't need any more nominalized Christians. We don't need any more compromised men and women. We don't need any more that want to form the bridge between the culture and the church. You know what we need? Men and women who are willing to stand for the truth like John the Baptist did. That's what we need. Church needs those who will stand for the truth. But let me warn you, and I'll leave you with this. If you stand for the truth, you by necessity will stand against the world. And what we will learn next week when we finish up this little mini-series on John the Baptist, is that the world fights back. Let's pray. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're... Uh, sometimes we get overwhelmed when we look around us and we see the degree that we have slipped from the true faith. We wonder when we look at our culture and our country and we see it just failing. We see our institutions failing. We see lies rampant. We see immorality of every kind in nature and we wonder what's wrong. Well, it, it starts here. This is the threshing floor. This, this, this is the, the, the place where the rubber hits the road and it is over your truth as opposed to the lack of truth in this world. Help us, Lord, each and every one of us, because we are a collection of people. That's what a church is. I pray that your spirit will help each and every one of us be John the Baptist when we stand against the truth. No, I mean, stand against the falsehood and with and for the truth, regardless of what the consequences are. Giving you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.